I'm David Alexander, joined by host Tony Kalinowski. Welcome to the Retirement Insiders, where we'll share key insights today for your retirement journey. Welcome back to another episode of the Retirement Insiders. I'm your host, Tony Kalinowski. And as a reminder, you know, the topics we touch on here are what we call the six pillars of retirement, which are faith, family, friends, fitness, finance, and fun. And today we're going to talk a little bit about fitness and a lot about fun with our guest. David? A lot about fun. And I'm David Alexander, co-host and producer here at the Retirement Insiders. You know, Tony, I was telling someone uh, about our guest earlier today, and they literally couldn't believe that one person could have so many injuries. I mean, flying, diving, and cooking in Paris. I mean, what am I doing with my life? I feel like I'm I'm kind of boring. Well, I I can I can see that David, you you maybe need to shut down the Netflix and start doing a little reading, doing a little studying, uh, maybe some pilot's goggles, I don't know. I don't know if I'd want to see you in the air, but honestly, today's guest is living a full retirement life, which is really what we hope to see when we reach that important age. So let's dive right in, no pun intended. We're introducing you to a man who has flown, who's been a diver. He's whipped up French culinary cuisine. Our guest today has intentionally crafted a retirement that's vibrant. I think you'll find this journey interesting. Let's get started, David. Absolutely. Today, we are welcoming Jeff Chosett. Welcome to the show. Thank you both very much, uh, Tony and David. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks, Jeff, for being on the show. Before we talk about your current uh, life and enjoyment in retirement, uh, can you share some background about what it was like growing up? I was an only child. My parents were older. My mom was 37 when I was born, and my dad was 35. My dad was a DJ, radio announcer. He was a minor local celebrity. Uh, both are really nice people, and I was very fortunate. I had a wonderful childhood. So walk us through uh, high school and college. What were your interests? And talk to us a bit about your career path. Happy to do that. I graduated University City High School in 1971. That fall was a momentous occurrence for me. It was the draft lottery. And when I got number 268, I realized that Jeffrey was not going to Vietnam. And I was the second to last lottery to go to Vietnam. And at that time, most young men had one great goal in life, not going to Vietnam. I went to the junior college for a year, and then I uh, changed to Maryville College at the time, which is today Maryville University. And I graduated with a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Interior Design with a minor in Art History. At the time, I was working at a furniture store and making $6,000 a year, and I was going to get married. And I realized that I had a potential problem on my hands with my $6,000 a year income. And I saw an ad in the Post-Dispatch for a graphic arts salesman. Well, amazing ignorance. I didn't realize that graphic arts and fine arts were different. Anyway, I went and I interviewed for the job and I got it. And I wound up spending my entire career in the graphic arts industry. I initially was selling printing supplies, then printing presses. I started a business in 1995 selling flexographic printing supplies, sold the business in 2013, and I got a call from RBF. I was told the wire transfer arrived, and I never worked again. That was a good day. <laughs> good it day. was a really good day. Yeah, for sure. Wow, yeah. So how old were you then, Jeff, 2013? I was 59 years old. Oh, perfect, perfect. So you had a good long retirement ahead of you. When you were retiring, did you have any regrets about leaving the workforce in general? Because a lot of people kind of, that's their life. Uh, how about you? Tony, 
I didn't have a regret for a moment. Um, I kind of say tongue in cheek, I had some certain life regrets. I never became a fighter pilot. Um, I never was in the CIA, and I'm referring to the government entity, not the cooking school. Never paid attention during French class. Um, never going to be a fighter pilot. I knew that right away. I didn't think I'd be contacted from the CIA, even though they might have wanted a guy that had some world travel experience. Uh, but I thought I could do something about the French. In January 2014, I started taking French, French 101 at the St. Louis Community College. And I went to daytime with the kids. Uh, and they didn't know what to do with me. Here I was, <laughs> this guy, 60 years old, and they're all 19 years old. And they, I, it was just a very funny thing. I was the only kid at school that had a BMW 5 Series parked in the parking lot. That June, which was June of 2014, I switched my French studies to the Orléans Française de Saint-Louis, and I've continued to be associated with the Orléans since then. And what is the Orléans? Orléans is an organization uh, that promotes French culture and language. It started in the 19th century, and it's all over the world. Oh, really? So not a St. Louis per se, but no. a local kind of chapter correct okay. correct is it very large we have 500 members wow in the that's St. Louis. fantastic okay so so french when you were going through high school wasn't really interesting he had no interest yeah and so when you were going to maryville or actually when you were taking the day classes at st louis community college probably those kids were forced to take french because they had to but you were there because you wanted to there was a guy who was the professor and his name was roy day and he and I were about the same age, so we got along real well. And he looked at me one day and he said, you know, French 101 is not designed to teach you to speak French. It's designed to fulfill a language credit. It was profound. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so did you learn some French in that class? Yes. Yeah. And, it was, and it gave me a basis so that when I switched my French studies to the Orléans, um, I was better prepared than a lot of other people. Oh, so there are classes there at the Allianz yes. that you take. I see. Okay. And, and, and I have to ask this. So what would happen if you would have gone to your initial career desire trajectory within kind of the interior design? Background? I what have, would that have looked like? I would have become an interior designer, but based upon my interest, I would have been very happy becoming a curator for a museum. Mm -hmm. I have a real love of 18th century furniture, the stuff that no one even wants anymore. The stuff that on Antiques Roadshow, they look at the person and they go, well, they used to be worth so many thousands, but now it's worth 300 because nobody's buying brown furniture anymore. But you would buy it because you love oh, yes. it. Oh, yes. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, see, that. that's pretty cool. Okay. So you still have that interest of interior yes. design and furniture and things of that nature. Okay. I want to talk a little bit more about your journey and having fun during retirement. But before we do, we're going to take a quick message break. Retirement is a time to pursue your dearest passions, live with purpose, and make an impact. Financial health is a crucial building block to achieve those goals, and host Tony Kalinowski can help. For 40 years, RBF Wealth Advisors has helped families maximize their retirement resources through sound financial planning and investment management. If this show resonates with you, reach out to Tony today. Call RBF at 314 997 1652 and schedule a time to visit. And we're back here on the Retirement Insiders with Jeff Chosid. Uh, 
Jeff's on a mission to live life to the fullest during retirement. Um, most people have one or two hobbies they're passionate about, but you have a variety of hobbies. Tell us more about some of those hobbies, maybe how you chose them, how they formed, what you enjoy most about them. I've been a shooter most of my life and a competitive shooter. Um, I was uh, shot a service rifle, high power rifle uh, from 1996 to 2005. Uh, then shot quite a bit of pistol after that, returned to high power rifle, and then recently got back into competitive pistol shooting. I guess my biggest love is my cooking. I would like to be defined by my, shall we say, comfort in the kitchen. I love to travel. I've traveled all over the world. I've visited 43 countries. I'm a collector. I collect guns. I collect nice watches. And I've been doing leather work for a bit, too. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, and, and tell me how some of those evolved. Well, the most interesting one is how the leather evolved. Okay. I went to a movie, and I thought, wow, these holsters are really cool in the movie. And I bought a book probably called Al Stoneman, How to Make Holsters. Well, the movie was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and that was 1969. So I've been making holsters and belts for 54 years. I don't do any commercial work. I just give them to friends. I still look items that I make, and I go, I can't believe I made that. It brings me pleasure to give it to friends. Yeah, that was really cool because uh, three years ago, uh, you basically approached me and said, hey, I want to make you a belt. And I'm like, I didn't even know you did that. So you you said, do you want uh, saddle or black? I said, well, let's do saddle because that's a unique color. And when I got that belt, I have to tell you, it was one of the best belts I ever, I still use it. It's a great belt. Now, the belt I have on today is a black belt, which is the one you made me two years ago because I hinted that my black belt was getting worn out. And would you please make me a black belt? And he said, sure, I'll make you a black belt. And literally within, how long does it take you to make a belt? It probably takes two or three hours over a couple of days. And, and you, you, you don't just use regular leather. You, you, tell about, talk about I, that. Um, there's, only a couple of, of, uh, there's only a couple of tanneries in the U.S. that make uh, vegetable tan leather. And one of them is located here in St. Louis, and it's called Herman Oak Leather Company. So I'm very fortunate to be able to buy leather from what I consider to be the best vegetable tanned leather in the U.S. You know, again, we're talking about shooting and travel and collecting and furniture and leather. And then all of a sudden we're talking about cooking, which is really kind of something that you really feel like is your real passion, I'm guessing, because something you do every day I've learned from you. And I want to talk a little bit about that. Talk about the the pattern of your day and cooking and how that all kind of comes into play. Well, let me kind of give you the history of my cooking. I never lived alone, and I went to school here in St. Louis, as I mentioned earlier, and I went from my mother's care to my wife's care. And at that time, I could make an omelet and maybe a steak, and that was about it. In 2017, I decided to learn to cook. I took some local classes at the Kitchen Conservatory. I did a few online classes, the Web Cooking Class Program and also the French Cooking Academy taking cooking classes in Paris. I get recipes from primarily Cooks Illustrated and Serious Eats, and I do all the cooking at home, and I also do entertaining. Yeah. I have dinner parties at my house. And, and, and the cooking is a process. So talk about, I know you've, you've mentioned your day to me sometimes. You, you basically, every day, you're kind of preparing for a, a unique meal. Is that not right? I try to make every meal of a level that if you had it in a restaurant, you would say, this is good. I do all the cooking at home. 
And that means that I probably cook three to four dinners a week. And I plan it very carefully. I shop to a list. I'm totally uncreative. Uh, I don't try to come up with new and unique recipes. Uh, primarily, I cook French bistro type foods. And they've been around for a long time. And there's not much I can do to improve on a beef bourguignon. I normally start prepping for dinner at about 4 o'clock. At roughly 4.59.30, I stop and I make a martini. I watch the local news and the network news. And then I return to the kitchen at 6 o'clock and I start putting it all together. And my goal is to put dinner on the table somewhere between 6.45 and 7 o'clock. And so the, the shopping for that, is that a once-a-week thing or is that a day-to-day -day thing? I, I typically shop every three days. And local, local stores? I start at Whole Foods, mm -hmm. and then I move to Schnucks. And then if I need to go to any sort of specialty supplier, I go from there. I see. And you mentioned uh, that you entertain at home when you cook, and, and you talk about plated dinners and things of that nature. How many have you entertained at a time? I would not feel comfortable um, serving more than eight people. But you, eight people, that's quite a, that's quite a feat. I don't, everything I don't ready do, at the same time. I don't do it alone. Oh, okay. um, we have a lady that works for us, um, and she's willing to work for me uh, for dinner parties. So she doesn't help me cook, but she helps me with everything else. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. So I'm so curious on Paris. Uh, do you have any unforgettable stories from trips that you've taken that you could share with us? My first trip to Paris was in 1993. I worked for a guy... Um, and he thought that I was making an incredible sacrifice when I was traveling for business. And I was traveling all over the world. And he made sure that wherever I went, I would have time on my own that I could be a tourist and enjoy the destination. And I was going to be going to a trade show in Dusseldorf. And Dave Bukine, who's the guy, arranged for me to have a weekend in Paris. So in April in Paris of 1993, I flew from Dusseldorf to Paris and arrived for a long weekend on my own in Paris. And there's a French term, coup de foudre, meaning basically I fell madly in love. Uh, so after that, anytime I was in Europe on business, I would try to uh, add a couple of days to Paris. And after I retired, uh, I then started to go to Paris three weeks a year. I typically go in the spring by myself, and then I go in the fall with my wife. And people say, wait a minute, you go to Paris by yourself and your wife is okay with that? And I have this response, I just say, hey, listen, I've been married for 46 years, leave it alone. But your fall trip, it does involve Claire. Absolutely. Is it, diff is it a different trip when you're by yourself versus when you're together? A little bit. Uh, I would stay in the same neighborhood on both of those trips. Um, if I'm by myself, um, I might go a little bit more economical. Um, and with Claire, I try to do things that I know will bring her pleasure. So living like a Parisian, a uh, native, when you're there by yourself, you're kind of living as a Parisian would live to a certain extent. Would you? Yes. What's that like? Well, to start off, I speak French after all these years of studying French. And I'll rent an apartment in the 7th arrondissement, the 7th arrondissement. 
get up in the morning and I go out for breakfast in a cafe, and then lunch I probably get a sandwich at a boulangerie. And dinner, I go out for someplace pretty nice. I have favorite places all over the city. Um, and I really kind of live like a local. I go to the supermarché, the supermarket, and I, I buy things to have around the apartment. I go to the boulangerie once a day, the, the, the bread bakery. Uh, go to the fromagerie, the, the, the cheese store. And I consider myself a flaneur. And flaneur has no direct translation, but it means someone that enjoys just walking around Paris. Um, and I walk an enormous amount in Paris, and I take the metro. And I do a lot of photography. And you send your photos back, too, as well. I have a website, and I typically post a, a, a brief paragraph of what I did that day and include a handful of photographs. And when I come back, then I'll go through all of my photographs and really work on them, and then I add them to my website uh, the finished collection. And just a comment about photography, I am absolutely confident of my rule of 10% that no matter how many pictures that you take, maybe 10% are good enough to share. So if I shot 200 pictures in Paris in a week, maybe 20 will be okay. You used to carry a lot of photo equipment, if I, if I recall. Um, how do you approach it now? Everything's changed. Now I carry a phone that has a wonderful camera. I also carry, if I'm going to a place like Paris, I'll carry a very high quality uh, compact camera, the Sony RX106. And I've really kind of asked myself, what days do you take a camera and what days do you rely on a phone? Because the phone takes incredibly good pictures. What type of phone do you have, Jeff? I have an Apple, iPhone 15 Pro Max with the USB-C charging port. That's the newest um, phone, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> so do you I keep your phones up to date yes, for that very purpose? I, I get a new phone every year. I just don't uh -huh. want to be the guy at the airport pulling on a lightning cable <laughs> and people would point at me and laugh. <laughs> that's funny. All right. So we talked about Paris and, and that's kind of adventurous when you think about it and you just kind of show up someplace. And I know you've been doing it for years, but probably the first few times, kind of an adventure. But I want to go into some of the other things you do, which are not just so relaxing and things of that nature. So you had at one point been a pilot? Yes. When I graduated college, um, I was taking flying lessons. This is 1976 before I got my first paycheck. And I flew until uh, 1979, and on January 2nd of 1980, Claire and I uh, got a Jaguar E-Type. And we messed around with sports cars for quite a number of years. Then late in the 80s, it was bicycles. Then in, at the age of 62, it became scuba diving. And there's a little history behind the scuba diving. Claire and I were in Hawaii, and I don't like sun, I don't like fun, I don't like sand, I don't like to swim even though I have a pool. And I realized that if I got a scuba certification, I could go to these places that she enjoys and I could have something to do. So starting at 62 is later than most people get involved in scuba diving. And I've uh, had an opportunity in a relatively short period of time to dive in some pretty interesting places. Grand Cayman, Southeast Florida, Florida Panhandle, North Carolina, Hawaii, Bora Bora, this coming January, Claire and I will be in Turks and Caicos. Interesting. I've dived um, the U-boat U-352 off in North Carolina. 
I've dived USS Oriskany in Florida. I have a PADI Tech 50 certification, and as of right now, I have 275 log dives. Wow. What's the Tech 50 certification? That is decompression diving, down to 165 feet. Recreational diving is down to 130 feet. When you go below 130 feet, you need to use different equipment, a lot of redundancy, and also various gases for decompression. So that's called technical diving. And what Tech 50 means is that I'm certified to dive to 50 meters with multiple gases. Tech 50 diving at certain levels, which creates gases and certain compression, things of that nature, sounds dangerous. At this stage of your life, is that something you're going to continue to do? I've already made the decision not to. In the last year, I decided that there were a few things as far as diving that might not be the best thing for someone turning 70. I decided not to dive with side mount tanks, which would be two steel tanks. Uh, last year, I struggled getting up the ladder on a boat, and I decided that decompression diving maybe wasn't the best idea. So I'm doing a lot of recreational diving, but I've chosen not to do side mount diving or to do any decompression diving. So specifically, you dove two wrecks, I guess we would say, the U-352 which you can tell us what that is, and the Oriskany, the USS Oriskany. Can you talk about those? Yes. U-352 was a German U-boat, and it was sunk off North Carolina uh, in the spring of 1942. And the story behind it is pretty interesting. The boat, and by the way, submarines, no matter what their size, it's always a boat, fired torpedoes at what it thought was a merchant vessel off the coast. Well, there was not a merchant vessel. It was U.S. Coast Guard cutter Icarus. And Icarus engaged the U-boat and uh, eventually um, with depth charges, and it surfaced, and they engaged the U-boat on the surface with machine guns and deck guns. The U-boat then sunk, and the Germans that survived that sinking were the first POWs in the U.S., Interesting. And so you wanted to dive that. Why? Man, that's cool. It's relatively shallow. It's in 100 feet. And we dived on a really clear day, water clarity. And as soon as you put your mask under the surface of the water, there it was. Um, This U-boat on on the floor of the Atlantic. Did you, were you able to get near it? Absolutely. In it or anything? You would not penetrate it, but we were able to, to. uh, swim all around it. Interesting. And how about the Oriskany? USS Oriskany was an aircraft carrier. Uh, it was built, I think, at the end of World War II, and it was used all the way through the Vietnam War. It was reefed, and I use the term like a, a verb. Reefed means to purposely sink a boat uh, or a ship uh, to act as uh, an artificial reef. So it was sunk off of uh, Pensacola, and uh, we dived that one day. That should be, would have been an interesting. Topic. It really was. Yeah, very cool, very cool. Yeah, it's fascinating going, you're going deeper. I'm gonna take us to a higher level and uh, ask about your perspective on retirement because you said in our pre-interview that when you retire, it was the first day of the rest of your life. Your perspective is intriguing. Talk to me a little bit about that. How has it evolved when you think about retirement? Many people that are typically men are singularly defined by their careers. And when they retire, they have nothing planned, they have nothing to do, and they just sit around. And I just 
you often say they're just waiting to die sitting on the sofa. To me, uh, my first day of retirement was the first day of the rest of my life. And I have uh, an incredibly full life. I'm active and I have so much to do. That is really cool. And that's really what our show is about is to encourage people not to be that person who sits around and watches the History Channel on a day-to-day basis, but gets engaged not only in fun things, but community things. You're involved with the French community here in St. Louis, so you're involved. You're, you've got social aspects to that as well as learning aspects to that. You're engaged with people, guests come to your home, things of that nature. But I know fitness plays a role in your life as well. You mentioned you uh, were a bike rider at one point, and then you have a, a Scottish Terrier that helps you stay fit. That's true. Uh, Nigel is our eighth Scottish Terrier over a period of 45 years. And if you ask Claire, my wife, she would say that finally it took eight of them, but we have a really nice one. So Nigel and I walk every afternoon, and based upon our route, uh, we walk somewhere between seven and ten miles a week. Um, Then I have a Peloton that I bought in 2020 during the pandemic, and I'm on that typically three times a week. No more bike riding I didn't ride this year, rode a lot and up through last year, and I just did not get on a bike. Uh, it takes a lot of time, and I'm busy in the kitchen. Incredible. So before we wrap up, this has been a phenomenal conversation. Jeff, tell us your involvement with Orléans Française de Saint-Louis. I was trying to get it right. Is it Orléans Française de Saint-Louis? Saint-Louis. Saint-Louis. Okay. Um, sure. Uh, Orleans, uh, the Orleans Francaise uh, started in the 19th century, and it was an organization or is an organization that promotes French culture and French language, and it's all over the world. We have a Orleans here in St. Louis, which is Orleans Francaise de Saint-Louis, and I'm currently on the board of directors, and I'm one of the two vice presidents. And, and uh, it seems like it's particularly appropriate for St. Louis because we do have a French heritage here. Is there any, does that kind of come into play at all? We. Oui. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we here in St. Louis. <laughs> we have a lot of activities. Uh, we are, our, our primary function is providing French classes. And they could be classes. They could be private tutoring lessons. They could be translation services. Uh, our uh, director is also the honorary consul here in St. Louis for the French government. And then we have a lot of social events. One of the things we talk about a lot in this show is how in retirement you have to be social. You have to be out and visiting with people to keep you active, keeps you alive, keeps your brain active. So it's really cool that you found something to kind of keep you going and something that you're really passionate about. We're kind of at the end of our show, Jeff, and and our listeners, we always ask, as you've now experienced retirement, you're, quote, a retirement insider, you know things that other people don't know who aren't retired. What what nuggets of information would you share with them? I'm very fortunate that I enjoy good health. I remain active. I've got a lot of things going on. I don't know how I had time to work. Um, I love my time in the kitchen, and I love entertaining, and I really enjoy my grandchildren. Well, Jeff, you are now an official retirement insider. Thank you so much for sharing a piece of your story with us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and to all our listeners, remember, retirement is not the end of something. It's just the beginning of some of your best next chapters of life. 
Thank you for joining today's conversation. To learn more about Tony and services offered through RBF Wealth Advisors, visit the retirementinsiders.com. We also encourage you to share the podcast and leave a review or rating if you enjoy the content. Till next time, be well. Please note, securities offered by registered representatives through private client services, member FINRA SIPC. Advisory products and services offered through RBF Wealth Advisors, a registered investment advisor, private client services, and RBF Wealth Advisors are unaffiliated entities.